Thank you, Mike and team. Well done. Uh, I'm excited for today uh, because, as Mike said, the theme for this week is the silence of the Lamb. And for a few weeks now, I have been thinking about how do we depict that? How do we pull that together? How do we keep you from thinking about that creepy movie? Um, <laughs> we are, and so one of the, uh, well, there's actually two things that kind of came to my mind. The first thing, and I'm going to invite Emily to come on up. Emily Weersma, a great friend of mine, she is going to do something that I hope is a blessing because it really is an act of worship. And as I read our text from Isaiah 53, many of us have heard it, but as I read that, I want to have you see it. So that was kind of where I was going in my thought process was that I really wanted to kind of engage a lot of our other senses just other than our hearing while we're here today. That brings me over to this friend. So over here, a lot of times the last few weeks, we've had artists of various people kind of over there in the corner, but I really wanted to prominently display Hannah because I really like her. But we have spent some time talking about what this looks like. So interestingly, for those of you who are a little younger in the crowd, I can remember as a youngster growing up, I would be mesmerized by somebody in my pew that was doodling and I'm still mesmerized by Bob Ross. I mean, you can just sit for, so if you just zone out on me, if you're just staring at Emily, or I think we may even be having it up on the screen, I'm okay with that. Because I think when you see what she ends up with, I have a little bit of a hint of where she's going with this painting. I think you're gonna quickly see that that is the sermon instead of in a sentence, but it's the sermon in a painting. And I hope that's what you kind of leave Two visual things rather than just the words that we're going to share with you. So I'm going to read from Isaiah 53, and I'm going to have Emily take center stage. And this is from the New Living Translation. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. 
he was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his, in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. This is the word of God. Thank you, Emily. So if you were with us last week, and even if you weren't, Allie led a instructional time, kind of explaining and, and by practicing what an inductive Bible study might look like. And there were some questions that we're going to kind of repeat that exercise again today. So here are my questions that I would love to have you spend just a couple of minutes, again, with somebody that's close by. So if you see somebody that doesn't have anybody to talk to, be the bold one and walk across the aisle. And so here are the questions I want you to think about or discuss. What did you see and hear as we read that passage? And did seeing the words conjure up any reactions or emotions that maybe just hearing the words wouldn't have done for you? And then the third one, if you have some time, what did you wonder about? As we read through that Isaiah passage, what did you wonder about? So again, this is our freedom to talk in church. Take just a couple of moments with somebody close by uh, and then just go through those. What did you see and hear? Did the words bring any reactions as you saw them? Or what did you wonder about? Ready, go. Or if you want, you can just watch Hannah paint. <laughs> I know I'm probably interrupting some good conversations, so I would encourage you just to continue that with those maybe after the service or over lunch or in the next few days if you feel called. But so today we're going to actually pick the story up kind of where we've left off. If you remember, if you've been worshiping with us, and even if you haven't, you're going to be able to kind of plug yourself into the story. We kind of left off the story where uh, Peter had kind of, had, Jesus had been arrested and Peter had denied. So we're going to basically start in the same area. And as you read through the four different accounts in the Gospels, there are lots of different little pieces that one maybe didn't put in and the other one put in, but there's a lot, a lot going on in just a short amount of time. Essentially, we're talking about Jesus being arrested somewhere around midnight is what they're sort of guessing and what the commentators would, would feel like. So for the next few short hours, Jesus is actually put on trial six different times. Six different times. Shortly after he was arrested, the first thing that Jesus is taken to is uh, Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the priest of the year. So I'm going, that is rather confusing. So I'm, we may have to refer to our movie theologian, Tom Vanderwell, because one commentator, because I have never seen the movie The Godfather, 
One commentator said when he went in front of Annas, it was a lot like Jesus was kind of walking into the Godfather. And I, I, I can't do that voice either, but I've already tried Mr. Rogers with you, but we're not going to try the Godfather. But that's kind of what it was like. Almost like they were bringing Jesus in to get some sort of admission of guilt just out of fear. So if you can picture, even if you haven't seen the movie, you kind of know sort of what I'm talking about. And it really was kind of a matter of just killing some time before the Sanhedrin could gather themselves so that they could put together this trial. So then we go from Annas, then we go to Caiaphas, who is actually the high priest. And then from Caiaphas, they go to the Sanhedrin. So who are, this, who are those guys? Those are like 72 descendants of Moses. They had been around for a long time, passed on through their family uh, generationally. And they were like the Congress, the President, and the Supreme Court all wrapped up into one. If you could kind of imagine what that is. And here's the interesting thing. And Jesus knew this. If you look back to his, some of his original statements when they arrested him, they were only allowed to operate during daylight. So they knew full well what they were doing was not legal by their own rules, regulations, and standards. Because when Jesus was arrested, he asked, couldn't I, all the different times I was speaking in the temple, you couldn't arrest me then. You didn't have anything to say then. So it is kind of interesting. Now, in front of the Sanhedrin, you have these people that are falsely accusing him. They bring in these false witnesses. I mean, what a zoo. I mean, it is just mass chaos. And, and what's really interesting is that Jesus is put on trial by these people in a kangaroo court, whatever terminology you want to use. It isn't it interesting that Jesus, for the most part, remains silent. And I think that's interesting because even in his silence... Jesus is moving the story along to where he knows it has to go. Even in his silence, he's in control. So from the Sanhedrin, then you go off to Pilate because they didn't have the authority to execute him. The Sanhedrin didn't, so they brought him to Pilate. And Pilate's going, well, this blasphemy stuff, that doesn't do anything for my rules and laws. So then he sent, Pilate sent him on to the uh, Herod. And Herod was all excited to see him because he had heard about it. Well, Herod didn't have anything that he could do, so he sent him back to Pilate. I mean, it's just craziness. Crazy for six hours. I guess my hope is that as we sit here today, 2021, can you even picture the scene? I mean, the, the tension and the drama just keeps escalating. Can you hear the shouting voices? I really want you to just, in your own mind's eye, just picture the scene. I mean, I think that's why, part of why the movie The Passion became so popular. It depicted in such a real, real way that we could almost put ourselves there. Can you hear the screaming? Can you hear the shouts? Can you see him spitting in Jesus' face? Can you see him literally beating him to where he's beyond recognition? Can you hear the angry mob? They weren't going to take no for an answer. They're screaming their accusations. Can you just sense and feel the hate in the room? I don't think we can, in sitting here today, can even begin to comprehend. It's boiling over. They wanted blood. And they got it. 
Not only on the cross, but through this whole process, again, Jesus was mocked. He was spit on. I mean, they were literally screaming uh, that his blood be on them and on their children. That is the level of rage and anger. And out of this bedlam, ultimately, hell itself was unleashed on the innocent Son of God. And yet Jesus remained silent. It's interesting because the silence of Jesus is obviously in very stark contrast to the roar of the crowd. You know, last week, my wife Lisa was sharing how one of the things that jumped out to her as she was comparing how Peter denied and fled compared to Jesus in contrast to Jesus' obedience and going to the cross. And so today that got me thinking, the silence of Jesus is in direct contrast to the roar and shouts of the crowd. Because if you think about it, most people, common sense, most people, if they're threatened with their lives, they're going to be scared, they're going to be terrified, they're going to try to talk themselves out of it. They're going to aggressively be forming their defense. They're going to be looking for all sorts of cross-examination opportunities. They're going to be looking for any kind of appeal they could possibly get. But not Jesus. He remains silent. You know, when I think about the few times that I have been attacked, or maybe even more so, times when I felt like my kids have been attacked, silence was not my first go-to. I'm quick to defend. I'm quick to talk up a storm. And if I couldn't talk to the person that I felt had offended me or had misunderstood me, I would talk to anybody that would listen. I don't know. Can any of you relate to that? But yet Jesus, he demonstrates his extraordinary strength and dignity. He doesn't resist. He doesn't cry out to defend himself. He doesn't protest his innocence. He doesn't expose the lies of his accusers. And he doesn't appeal to a higher court. The one who was the word the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who holds everything together, does not speak a word. So where does that resolve come from? How does he do it? I think if you go back to where we have been in previous weeks and look at what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think there are some clues for us to learn from. He was pleading with his father in prayer to spare him from having to drink the cup of sin, the cup of suffering, the cup of death. Remember this? Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but thy will. So after having confirmed that the cup and he having to drink it was actually the will of the Father, he was strengthened. He came out with resolve and he was composed. John 18, 11 says, Jesus commanded Peter after Peter had sliced the guy's ear off. He said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So, over the last few weeks, Lisa and Hannah and I, we kind of chatted. And I got to give credit where credit is due. Because if you've listened to us in the auditorium... Sermon in a Sentence came from Lisa. 
and it's a good one. You guys are going to like it. You'll probably like this one. You're actually going to remember. I hope I quote you correctly. Essentially, it's this. And I could really make a mess, and I think you're seeing it in the painting. You can't speak when you're drinking. Common sense, but you can't speak when you're drinking. And Jesus took the cup. He drank every last drop. So, it is interesting when you think about how Jesus handled these trials compared to how we in our human nature handle trials. A couple of questions that I've asked myself, and I think it's fair to ask all of us, especially during a time of Lent. Do you, do I spend time with our Heavenly Father? Do we wrestle with Him to understand His purposes? Are we bringing our hearts into alignment with His will and trying to gain His perspective? I don't know about you, but I, as I said earlier, I'm quick to talk to everyone else about my distress, my troubles, my pains, my sorrows, things that I feel I've been wronged. Quick to send off a text, quick to send off an email, quick to just, whatever that is. I love explaining how I've been wronged, how I've been misunderstood. But Jesus, he brought his concerns his pain to the Father. So friends, i got to ask a question. I wonder how much more Christ-like, how much more resolute and composed we might be in the presence of evil and with the things that hurt us if we first got before God and worked things out with him. If that was our first reaction. You know, God blessed me this week as I was pondering that, late addition to the sermon, shocking for those of you who know me, Hebrews 4, 4 verses 14 to 16, and I want to read those to you. I didn't put them up on the screen because it was literally a late edition, so you're just going to have to trust me and, whew, I need to get some new reading glasses, my friends. <laughs> Father's Day is coming, so, whew. Here it is, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Again, a fairly familiar passage, but in this light, I thought, wow, that's good stuff. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Gang, your Savior empathizes with you. If you leave here with nothing else, just know that you have a Savior that empathizes with you. He took on our weaknesses so that we could run to him. And we would know that he understands us and he tenderly will care for us. If you look at the part of 15, the second part of 15, your Savior went through what you're going through. 
He's not shocked by what we face. He's not surprised by the temptations. There's no situation or relationship that you and I will face that he is unacquainted with. My friends, that's, that's victory. That's a victory that we can hang on to. That's a promise that we can hang on to. But here's the key part. Here's the key part of it. Don't stop reading there because your Savior went through what you're going through without sinning. Gang, we need help. That's quite obvious. And he withstood everything that defeats us. He succeeded where we regularly fail. He faced what we face without any wrong in his word, his action, or his thoughts. And the beauty of it is when we come to him, he meets us with mercy and grace in that moment. But like I said earlier, isn't it awesome just to watch God in his silence just keeps pushing the story. He's pushing the narrative. He's in charge. He's getting to where it needs to go. Remember, John 10 verse 18 says this, No one takes his life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Those are Jesus' words. He laid down his life on his own accord. Now we know, we know, and I'm going to acknowledge that Jesus was not absolutely from beginning, from midnight till noon, he was not absolutely silent. He did speak at times. For example, in Matthew 26, the high priest asked him a direct question, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And that knowing that Jesus was under a solemn oath, he legally had to answer. But here's what I want you to know, and all those times he did speak, that he never denied the truth by what he said or what he didn't say. He was always in complete control. He knew when to speak and when to be quiet. Ooh, that sounds like something in Ecclesiastic. There's a time, I could tell you about a story in seventh grade. I learned that verse because I had an English teacher that didn't think I knew that verse very well, so I wrote that verse out a lot of times on the chalkboard. There's a time to speak and a time to be quiet. There's a time to speak and a time to be quiet. There's a time, oh. Loved Mrs. Stravers. Maybe not so much then, but I sure do now. I can diagram a sentence with the best of them. So here's my takeaway from that. I think there's a key indicator of when to speak up when you're being harassed or misunderstood. And I think that can be determined by whether it's our honor or whether it's God's honor that's being threatened. And there's a big difference whether it's our honor or whether it's God's honor. So, after Allie's teaching last week, my big I wonder, my big I wonder, as I kind of studied through all of these, why the silence? I mean, so why the silence? I mean, I, I, I get past the, I guess there's a couple of things that I would suggest. A, I think it's important for us to understand because I think it gives us a much bigger picture and understanding of God's big plan. As I said before, he had a purpose in all of this from the very beginning of time. But I also think there are some lessons for us as far as what I've kind of been alluding to as far as silence and being Christ followers in particular. Here we go. Big picture of our third church family. We're talking about 
living in exile, right? That's been our big theme for a year and a half, almost pushing into two years now. What does it look like living in exile? Gang, there are going to be times where we're given an opportunity to speak or to be silent. So I think Jesus, by his example, has given us. So why was he silent? For one, he had already spoken. I mean, for three years, he had kind of said what he needed to say. He had preached what he had done, uh, what he needed to preach. He had uh, delivered the messages, and he had shared the truth. One commentator said, there was no point in casting pearls of truth before those who had no heart for the truth. Second reason is Jesus refused to defend himself against the false claims because he had at his heart God's greater plan. I've said that a couple of times. God's greater plan. He was no victim. Third thing is the silence of Christ was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy, which we read earlier out of Isaiah 53. Jesus was always, I mean, his life was about fulfilling the prophecies. If you look at verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Christ, the Lamb of God, submitted quietly and willingly. I did read one thing. I'm not a sheep guy. I don't know if there's any sheep people in here. Sheep, according to this guy, this expert, said that if you grab them, they almost kind of just go limp and they just give. Whereas if you grab a pig or a cow or almost any other animal, to tell you, they're going to fight like crazy. So it is kind of an interesting thing to think that as the Lord was grabbed, because he knew where he had to get, he willingly gave in to those who were trying to kill him. He didn't speak because he took the cup. He didn't speak because he took the cup, our sin, all the sins, all time. You think of every sin imaginable, the big ones, the little ones, the white lies, the rapes, the murders, the thieves, the times you gossiped, all time. From the mass murderers to the people who cheat on their taxes, to the people who just, uh, the injustice of racism. I mean, you can go on and on and on. I gotta keep going back to that cup because he was suffering in our place. When we met as a teaching team, they asked, you know, what do you hope the general vibe? What do you want people to want? That's it. My general, I want you to walk away knowing my sins were in that cup, just like everybody else's. Yet Jesus drank that cup for me. That's why he was silent. He took the punishment of the trials, the beatings, the mockings, the rejection. Ultimately, the cross. He took all of it as if he deserved it. He felt the divine displeasure of the Father. He bore the wrath of God. Okay, I think there are times where, you know, in a world where, yes, we love to talk about the love of God, but I think in order to make that sweet, I think we have to truly understand 
how much God hates sin. I don't think you can avoid that. I think you've got to sit in that to be able to appreciate what the love of Jesus is all about. Jesus was silent because he took the cup. Don't just blow past that. I've sat where you're sitting. Yep, sounds good. Off to NCAA we go. Let that sink in. That's really what Lent is about because, you know, gang, because then come Easter, whole baby cakes. That's when, it, that's when we can celebrate. That's when we can celebrate. So today, Hannah, thank you. If you can see your Savior beaten, but yet drinking the cup that was intended for you. So where do we go? Really, the action steps are so common sense, so simple, but I'm going to just mention them. Can each of us in our own way acknowledge? Can we acknowledge that I should have been there? Can we acknowledge that the blows that Jesus took, the pain, the suffering, that I'm the one that deserves that? Perhaps spending some time in confession would be appropriate. And then finally, I would love some of the songs that Mike chose. Can we give thanks? Again, don't just blow by, but even as we prepare for Easter, can we give thanks that he remains silent while he drank the cup? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you. Thank you that the cross has the final word. Thank you for sending your son. That he was willing in love for each of us to drink from the cup that was intended for us. Father, I just confess right now that there are times where we just Take that with a grain of salt and we go on with our crazy and busy lives. Father, I just pray that we will take some time to think, to reflect, and with thankful hearts. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. I pray these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.